This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Kiki Mai Kake Mai and welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ National. It's long been thought that low genetic diversity was to blame for the koala's declining populations and local extinctions, but its genome tells a different story. During her recent Australian science media visit, Veronica caught up with Rebecca Johnson, one of the leaders of the Koala Genome Consortium, which found that koala are genetically diverse. This suggests that declining populations are the result of people's activities rather than inbreeding. I asked Rebecca how this new genetic knowledge will help the team to better manage the populations of this quintessentially Australian marsupial in the face of new pressures of urbanisation. As our honorary citizens, management is high on the agenda. They're a very popular animal for people to come and see when they visit Australia. And Australians love them too because they're, they're very iconic. They're pretty chilled out creatures. There's a lot of koala hospitals in various parts of Australia and if you're lucky enough to go and visit them, you can see these wild animals that have been brought into care because they might have been hit by a car or attacked by a dog or, or might have a disease. And they're being cared for and they're wild animals, but they just, they're just chill out and they quite happily receive the treatment. And it makes them quite endearing, I have to say. <laughs> you would have had a few encounters with them <laughs> yourself. <laughs> we have, even at working at a museum, we, we do have quite a few encounters with live koalas through, through our research. Where does genomics come into it? On the endangered list, where were the koalas? Yeah, so koalas are listed as vulnerable um, at the federal level, but they're an interesting and they're a challenging management species because they do have a very broad distribution and in the northern parts of their distribution which are kind of uh, north Queensland right down to Brisbane, southern Queensland, northern New South Wales and even as far as parts of Sydney they they certainly are um, in quite diminishing numbers and so they're, in each of those regions they actually have different management regimes. Um, koalas do like to live in habitat that does appear on the coastal areas and people also like to live there. So uh, there are constant um, challenges and there are constant pulls and pushes about who gets the habitat and if, if a road is being built, what happens to those animals? If a road is built, does it actually cut that population in two? And so genetics and, and genomics are a really great way of really understanding at the molecular level what it is that we have because there's so much evidence to suggest from looking at other species um, the most iconic one I guess would be the Tasmanian devil that is really important to maintain the genetic diversity that we have to ensure ongoing survival of the species into the future. So back in 2013, three years ago now, you co-led a consortium that cracked the genome first. 
So what happened to Instant? Genomics is still quite expensive, and um, even for human genomics, it, you know, the, the resources aren't unlimited. And certainly for non-model species like the koala, th there's not a huge amount of resource. So we dedicated most of our sequencing effort to a female because we wanted to get a really good idea of the sex chromosomes. And in female um, marsupials have sex chromosomes just like we do, um, to X chromosomes. So we wanted to get really good X chromosome coverage. So we did a female and we also did a male. So um, the male not quite so thoroughly. In the intervening couple of years, we've added a couple more animals, also females. So what have we found since 2013? We've found that the genome is at least the size of humans, if not a little bit bigger, which is um, challenging. because that's, So that's, that's a number of genes uh, that we're talking um, about there? We're talking about the actual whole genome size. Number of genes, probably very similar as well. So looking at the genes, we found things like they have um, really expanded number of um, alpha amylase genes. So those are genes that are <laughs> implicated in um, metabolising starch. So if you think about what a koala eats, which is just eucalyptus, that's pretty much all they do is metabolise starchy foods. Those are some of the early things that we found. Um, also some expansions in some of the detoxification gene families. And again, eucalyptus, which is also poison, <laughs> probably having an expansion in your detox genes is a very handy thing when that's all you eat. Did you find that the nationwide population is still one species or are we looking at sort of slow separation of interest, not subspecies quite, but population genomics? It's really? a really, really great question. And um, if you look historically at where koalas were collected and, and some of their distribution maps, they actually was broken into subspecies and they conveniently followed the state lines. <laughs> so there was one in Queensland, there was one in New South Wales and there was one in Victoria. And there is uh, absolutely no evidence that there are separate species based on both the molecular and even morphological, so the external characters, studies into those, those both of those um, avenues of, of work. If you take an animal from the very top of Australia and an animal from the very southern parts, they will look quite different. So there, there is a latitudinal decline in the way that they look different. So the, the animals that are from the south are much bigger, they're much furrier, they, they have to live in a much cooler climate, and the animals from the north are, are much smaller and um, have less fur, and, and they're probably a little bit more brown compared to some of the animals that, that from the south that might be a little bit more grey. But absolutely one species, so for management purposes that makes it much easier. So to manage them across state, as, as per the state lines, is not very sensible, and it would be artificially limiting those, those populations. So in terms of if you think of managing a species, you know, should you be breeding them across the state lines deliberately to at least hold on to any genetic diversity that is there now? We would always recommend um, looking at that as thoroughly as, as resources would let you, but um, there is nothing to suggest that you shouldn't be mixing close-by populations to ensure as much diversity as possible. And um, we've recently completed some work where we looked at animals from pretty much the entire distribution and found some more ancient um, separations in the populations, which were probably around the Pleistocene, so the last glacial maximum, which is 20,000 plus years ago. So not, not state boundaries, not, but ice and glacial <laughs> boundaries. not state boundaries. Those genetic data showed evidence of some glacial Pleistocene boundaries, which have since been quite leaky, but, but kind of show that koalas have been stable for a really long time, and probably after the last glacial maximum, particularly in the southern regions, that's when they kind of really moved out. So there's effectively three kind of ancient populations, but that would never be a barrier to ensuring that there's enough mixture as possible between those groups. Another focus of the genomics project was to look at 
particular diseases that seem to affect some but not all koala and in different places and with different severity as well? Yeah, koalas are very susceptible to chlamydia and that's particularly the case in those northern populations, the areas around Queensland and parts of northern New South Wales. And those are the animals that are most um, likely to encounter urbanisation, so their habitat is changing, they're likely to be hit by cars, unfortunately, uh, they are attacked by dogs. In addition to that, they also suffer from reasonably prevalent chlamydia, and they get it both in their eyes and also in their genital tract. Um, and the genome has been really helpful in understanding at the molecular level what are the immune genes of the koala and our collaborators are working very heavily on a vaccine for chlamydia and um, I believe the genome has been very informative in, in helping them work on that vaccine which, which I believe is looking quite positive. So on that immune system and the genetics underlying that or genes underlying that, do you see any differences in the populations in the different states? Obviously, they, they have quite a gradient in temperature alone, but I'd imagine there'd be other gradients going through the as populations as well. As far as the immune well. genes, we have not looked at those at a population level. We're now in a position to do so, which is really exciting. If you compare them to what we know about another species that's very, very well studied, which is the Tasmanian devil, they have practically no diversity in their immune genes. This is not a problem until you're then suddenly subject to some, a new challenge, like the facial tumour, which is what the Tasmanian devils have suffered from very badly. And when you don't have any diversity, you're not in a position to mount any response and you can't get that diversity from anywhere else. Koalas, in contrast, do appear to have much more diversity, which is really positive. Yet we have not done that for the entire population, but we, we certainly could do that. It's a very positive thing, but it's something that we definitely need to maintain because we don't want to end up with a homogeneous or a, a population with no diversity. Another aspect of what's great about working in a museum and having a museum as part of these projects we have samples that were collected just post-European settlement of Australia. So we can actually go back to those samples and have a look at what was the diversity in those samples. And that's been done at a preliminary level by some of our collaborators. And um, it doesn't appear that there has been a huge loss of diversity since those original post-European settlement samples were collected. However, that's not enough to say, oh, it's all fine. It now means that we're, we have something to manage and we have some diversity and that's really positive. And obviously human impact is human one impact of the main is, is certain, factors yes, here. It's certainly a main factor. Urbanisation, shrinking habitat, they're notoriously picky about the eucalyptus species that they like to live in. That combined with putting a road through habitat or domestic dogs or being hit by cars are, are all challenges for this species that, that need to be considered and can be managed if, if considered and done properly. In terms of the genetic diversity, would you say they're still resilient as far as, you know, if you imagine a new disease coming through or the, the facial tumours in Tasmanian devils, something like that, koala would be more resilient, genetically speaking? I guess it's impossible to predict if it's something incredibly novel that we just don't know about. But just looking at the general diversity of koalas, they're comparable to other marsupial species. And given that this work that we've recently completed that shows that they're kind of, they've been quite a stable population for tens of thousands of years, that's an interesting thing. So obviously there's enough mixture that they do have diversity, but they have been stable and they have been there for a very long time. So we're quite positive that providing that diversity is maintained, they are in a reasonable position to be conserved into the future because that's, I think, what everyone wants. And that was Rebecca Johnson, who leads research into wildlife genomics at the Australian Museum. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter at rnz underscore science. Matiwa. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 